House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Michael Hawley, how are you doing? Great, Al. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Busy. Mm -hmm. It's only January and you never know it. It feels like, it feels like June. <laughs> already already, already. Uh, so you know um well let's see what are we getting into today we've got a crime thriller book here and we're going to be talking about the book called 27 days and it's a nick crane thriller and it's book one now the author is with us patrick h moore so thank you for being here patrick oh thanks for having me guys oh great so patrick um this is your first uh, Nick Crane thriller novel here of the series and stuff. So this is obviously a series. Um, how did you get into writing this? You you call it a uh, topical political thriller. Um, so where did that come from? Okay, well, there's a little history there. I actually, I did write a previous Nick Crane mystery thriller, which was indie published back in 2014. And uh you know, and it did pretty well, surprisingly well. Of course, we were um, selling those electronic downloads pretty inexpensively, too. The way I came to even writing thrillers at all is I've always been interested in writing from an early age. You know, I'm sure, like, just like many people that write mysteries and thrillers, you know, I, I went to college, I studied literature, I have an AA and a BA and an MA, all in English lit. And so I'm pretty conversant in the field, but I realized at a certain point that I didn't have whatever imagination is necessary to write, quote, literary fiction. And I also realized that I always like liked, like, you know, a rambunctious story with a lot of action and a lot going on. I also like reading literary um, fiction. But so in any event, um, I went to college late. Um, after high school, I um, kicked around in the streets for a decade or so, met a lot of interesting people. But then when I was 30, I went to college, got my degrees. You know, I actually, I wrote a, what we would call a nonfiction novel, a Vietnam War memoir, based on the Vietnam experiences and the post-Vietnam experiences of a very good friend of mine named Warren Larry Foster. Um, Warren has unfortunately passed away in the last few years. And Warren was the inspiration for my, my protagonist is Nick Crane. Warren was the inspiration for his sidekick and closest friend and buddy, a fellow I call Bobby Moore. I actually met the Warren, the Bobby Moore inspiration, when I was going to community college at Foothill Community College in Los Altos in Northern California. It's kind of interesting. I was sitting there in my English 1B class, and I look off to my right, and oh, my God, this fellow looks like he could chew nails. And I'm actually, you know, and, and by this point, you know, I kicked around the streets for a long time. I was pretty comfortable around a variety of different types of people. But, but Warren, he was, you know, it, uh, let me describe him. He's about 5'9", stocky, not an ounce of fat maybe 225 pounds. To add to his appearance, he wore short shorts pretty much at least three days a year. He had big muscular thighs. He used to play shortstop in baseball. Could have probably, you know, maybe made the major leagues or at least done well in the minors had he not been waylaid in Vietnam. Square jaw, too? Yeah, he was he square jaw. <laughs> you, you better believe it. Warren, unfortunately, was waylaid in Vietnam on his next to last day in country when he stepped on a pineapple mine. Oh, boy. And he lost his way. To make a long story short, so I look over and there's Warren, and I thought, oh, well, I, you know, this guy makes me a little nervous. He certainly stood out at Foothill Community College, which is a fairly posh community college. If you guys know where Los Altos is, next to Palo Alto, right. um, in the, you know, on the, on the peninsula. To my surprise, Warren insisted that we be buddies. And so I got to know him. And he was a great fellow, and he'd suffered greatly. 
and he bore his scars. He was a PTSD veteran. He suggested that I write his memoirs in the form of a kind of a nonfiction novel. So I did, and we managed to land an agent with the help of that book, and it was shopped around New York for a couple years, but it never got published. And so then after that, I really didn't write much for the next decade. Mostly I played, I played in a rock band. I was the guitarist, lead singer and songwriter for a rock band that did okay in the Bay Area. This would have been during the 90s. But, you know, we were like the, we were like the oldest decent rock band making the, the um, cycle of the small clubs. And so we did that for about five years, and then that came to an end. And then in 2003, I got an opportunity, which is what led to me writing crime fiction. I was hired to come to work at John Brown and Associates in Los Angeles. John Brown and Associates was kind of an, an outstanding PI firm, an investigative firm, and also does what is called sentencing mitigation. And so I was hired as a part-time investigator and a full-time sentencing mitigation specialist. Your background in uh, literature, English literature, did that help? Oh, I, I, I would say, Michael, good question. Yeah, I, I would say it helped greatly. And, and, and just to backtrack just a bit, I was one of those people during my decade kicking around on the streets. You know, I did my best to be an autodidact. But really, in retrospect, I realized I wasn't very good at it. So going to school and studying literature and writing essays and taking lots of creative writing classes, all of those things helped greatly. We moved to Los Angeles, and we get a house um, in the suburb east of Los Angeles where, you know, where my wife and I could afford it, and I go to work for John Brown. And so John Brown is one of the nicest people that ever lived, but he is a stern taskmaster when it comes to writing quality. Oh, interesting. And, and so all through, you know, all through college, I was, you know, I was somewhat of a literary star. And in fact, I won some major awards as a graduate student. And I wrote a master's thesis, which I passed with honors. But none of that prepared me for writing sentencing memorandums for Mr. John Brown. <laughs> He took out, the, what do they call it, the red pencil or the blue pencil, some kind of a pencil he took out, and he edited me. Um, I won't say mercilessly, because he's such a nice fellow. He was never harsh in his suggestions, but he never hesitated to make his suggestions. And so, in essence, I was edited far more thoroughly writing sentencing memorandums, doing sentencing mitigation work, than I ever was during my college days. I think that was really helpful in that it helped me not only learn to scrutinize my own work a little more successfully, which, as you guys know, it's always hard to scrutinize your own work, to edit your own work, but it certainly gave me a sense that writing that you're going to put out there in the world, it has to be really good. Uh, and so during those my early years there, maybe from about, Oh, 2003 to 2008, I get the idea, well, heck, you know, I'm meeting some really interesting people, some of my clients. Some of my clients, actually, one of my most memorable clients, if we go back to um, Warren, the Bobby Moore character, or Bobby Moore inspiration, I had a client, he was a Latino guy who we'll, only, we'll, we'll call Sharky. That was his moniker. And Sharky was the toughest man that ever lived. Sharky, Sharky ran the freaking yard at Ironwood State Penitentiary. Oh, he's got to be tough. If you can imagine being tough enough to run the yard at a state prison. I remember he said to me, yeah, I said, you know, and he was a shot caller, so he'd give the orders. When people needed to be disciplined or what you call checked in the parlance, when people needed to be checked, um, it was Sharky giving the orders to check them. I remember one interesting comment he made. Yeah, he said they would haul the bodies out on stretchers. Wow. So anyway, so I met, you know, and I had known a lot of interesting characters during my life kicking around the streets in the Bay Area, Northern California, but nothing compared to some of the people I met doing my job. During the same period, I started reading crime fiction. 
And I really had no idea where to start. And kind of um, helpfully, I think, the first crime writer that I um, read in some depth and detail was Dennis Lehane. Or, of course, you guys know who Dennis Lehane is. <laughs> and I, I read his Patrick Kinsey series. And I thought the books were really, really good. They were really readable. And they were also fun. And they were scary and exciting. Around the same time, I started reading James Lee Burke. And so I read several of his um, Dave Robichaux novels. And, uh, and in my mind, I started comparing Robichaux to Dennis Lehane, or Robichaux to Patrick Kinsey in the Dennis Lehane series. You know, I thought, you know, Robichaux is great with atmosphere, and he's great with characters. Dennis Lehane, great with atmosphere, great with characters. I found that Lehane's plots were maybe a little more, I don't quite know how to put this, his plots were perhaps a little more clear and front and center than, um, than James Lee Burke's plots in the Robichaux novels. Those were the first two crime writers that I, you know, read in some depth. And I also started reading a few um, Jack Reacher novels. It took me a little while to warm up to Reacher. But, you know, after I read, yeah, I like Reacher too. And, and so, so I really started out, you know, reading the giants, you might say. Then in about 2008, I started hacking away at my first, my first crime mystery, or first mystery thriller, which is the book I call Cicero's Dead. And it took me a couple of years and, you know, a dozen drafts or more. I had a pretty good editor who was just like a friend who I met through the crime blog. And, uh, and he indie published it with his little publisher, U.S. Indie Books. And so that's the book that did surprisingly well. And so I was, you know, I was happy with that. One thought I had about the book is it was just kind of like a, um, kind of like a standard brand crime mystery thriller. That is, you know, you have your protagonist, who was Nick Crane. I invented the Nick Crane character. I invented Bobby Moore's sidekick. And I invented Nick's friend, a cop, a narcotics detective named, named Tony Bach. So they were kind of like the three musketeers. So I had my characters, and I was starting to learn to write in the noirish style, which I enjoyed. And so all of that was good. And, you know, the plot, it was a kidnapping story. And uh, there was a female love intrigue. And, uh, and at that point, Nick was married. He had a wife and he had a daughter. And I wasn't really sure to go with the female love intrigue. So in, as it turned out, it didn't go that far. So we, we published that in 2014. Um, actually, you know, probably a good five years after I finished it, but before it was thoroughly edited by my editor and publisher of U.S. Indie Books, a uh, Hollywood screenwriter named Max Myers. So Max Myers certainly did me a solid in uh, publishing my first book. At that point, I met a yeah, really kind of famous Hollywood executive producer named Peter Hoffman. And Peter Hoffman, who had a penchant for helping writers and artists in general, he consented to read Cicero's Dead, and so he read it. And then he reported back to me, and I remember really clearly what Peter said. Peter said, well, this is good. You know, it's a decent plot. You know, it's a solid book. However, for your next one, you know, float me a draft once you have a good draft, and let's talk about it to see if we can do anything to improve it. My next, the next book which I wrote is actually the prequel to 27 Days. Even though 27 Days is first in the series, the book before it, which is called Rogues and Patriots, is a book that Peter Hoffman kind of served as my um, casual editor, if you will. And, and so we wrote it, and uh, he had Hollywood connections, and he had back in the in the eighties, and he had been involved, and he'd been executive producer for some of the biggest blockbusters that Hollywood ever turned out. That's nice. And then he had his own production company after that, and it had its ebbs and flows. But he wasn't. He became less of a 
name in Hollywood, perhaps, than he had been during the years that he was making the um, Terminator-style Steven, um, Sylvester Stallone-type blockbusters. Peter Hoffman, he talked to some of his connections, and he got me hooked up with a kind of high-end Hollywood agency called the Intellectual Property Group. And they mostly make TV series and the occasional movie. I think they're involved in some way in the Bosch series, though I haven't looked into that, so I'm not really sure about that. But anyway, so they send, so they send my book, Rogues and Patriots, off to James Elroy's agent, and he rejects it. Oh, okay. So then they send it to another agent in New York, and he accepts it, and he shops it for the next couple of years. And I, I think it was sent to 60 publishers altogether. And uh, no soap. Nobody, nobody wants to uh, pick it up and take a chance with it. Hmm. And it's interesting. In retrospect, I understand why. And I think in retrospect, I probably wouldn't have published it myself if I were a publisher, because it had clear and obvious flaws to me after I had written 27 Days and had learned more about, you know, how to, how to write a noirish crime thriller. Specifically the noirish part? Yes and no. Because, you know, Lehane and James Lee Burke are kind of considered to be neo-noirish writers. It had more to do with learning how to structure a full-length 100,000-word novel, kind of the ebbs and flows of the plot. Okay. And, you know, the old saw, like, you know, any story, you know, it, it starts off and there's some kind of a crisis or problem, and then after a while things seem to be smoothing out and going pretty well, and then suddenly everything goes haywire. You know, and then you, so you have to deal with the next set of problems. And so you deal with the next set of problems, and then eventually you start to approach the climactic series of problems or set of problems. And, and so I think what Peter Hoffman taught me to do was to structure a book in somewhat the same way that a screenplay would be structured, I suspect. Okay. During the, the two years while Rhodes and Patriots was being shopped and being rejected, I wrote 27 Days. And in both of these books, what I attempted to do is... I wanted to write a PI thriller with, I, I hesitate to say social importance, but a PI that really addresses social issues, social problems. And so what I came up with was the idea of instead of having Nick kind of work out and solve kind of a, what I would call a standard type mystery, someone gets kidnapped, a desperate mother comes to you and you, you know, go from there and try to find the kidnapped person. Instead of doing that, I wanted to have Nick Crane take on or be taken on by a group of alt-right aristocratic super patriots. So this was kind of my brainstorm, if you would call it that, to, to, to write a crime thriller that you know, it's not just about a kidnapping or a murder or, you know, any of the normal problems that we see over and over again in books of this nature, but actually addressed um, social issues. And, and, and so that was my impetus in writing Rogues and Patriots, which I believe my publisher, Down and Out Books, will publish as the follow-up to 27 Days, which is which its publication date is February 6th. Oh, the 27 days is kind of like a pre-COVID kind of uh, world? Very, very good question, Michael. Yes, 27 days takes place in the spring of 2019. Okay. Rogues and Patriots, which comes before us, takes place in the fall of 2018. Okay. And uh, the sequel to Rogues and Patriots, which I'm writing now, which I call tentatively Giant Steps, it takes place in the fall of 2019. Oh, okay. So it's all pre-pandemic. And, of course, that's a, you know, an issue that lots of writers face. Like, you know, what do I do now that we're faced with a pandemic? Do I address it in my fiction or do I, you know, avoid it? Gotcha. And, and, so, and so in 27 days, by this point, 
I was aware of some flaws in Rogues and Patriots, which was essentially, although it was written in to some, some respects in like a kind of clip staccato traditional noirish style, not unlike what James Elroy uses in some of his later books. At the same time, I think there were purple passages and there was a bit of overwriting. And there was, you know, just, you know, aspects of it which in retrospect I wasn't comfortable with. Now is that because you were, one, you were writing 20, uh, your next book, then you just start, you pick that up, you realize it then, or was it some other book you read, or how did that connect? How did that work? I think it, it came about as I was writing 27 Days, um, but specifically, you know, a couple of my, um, you know, literary type friends, one in particular, one of the people I dedicate 27 Days to, a gentleman named B.J.W. Nash, um, he looked at a draft of 27 Days, and I was still making some of the mis overwriting type mistakes okay. that, that I was making in Rogues and Patriots. And he said, man, he said, you don't need this stuff. Just tell the story. You know, I have a lot of respect for his literary acumen, and so I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so at that point, all of the extraneous stuff, I just simply took it out and uh, tried to just tell the story in a straightforward fashion while making the story as interesting as possible. Now, by the time I had finished 27 Days, and this is a very, this is kind of an interesting part of the story, by this point, as you guys probably know, unpublished male thriller writers whose protagonists are tough guys who carry guns and are not afraid to use them, they've fallen out of favor with the big five traditional publishers. And uh, instead, as my agent who, and this is an interesting, my agent, I don't want to say who he is, but my, my agent who shopped Rogues and Patriots and was unable to get it published, he actually, when I sent him 27 days, he said, I'm not going to read this. He said, I cannot get my books with male protagonists, mystery thriller type books published. I just cannot place them. There's no interest in them. The industry wants, and here we use the words in quotes, the industry wants female intrigue. So there had been a, you know, kind of a shift. And so, but nonetheless, I persevered with um, 27 days, but I was very careful in it to make one of the main characters kind of an idealistic, young, progressive, female FBI agent. Yeah, okay. Her name is Carrie North. And so in the course of 27 days, my protagonist, Nick Crane, meets Carrie North. And at first, they're a bit like oil and water, tough old Nick, young, idealistic Carrie North. In fact, Nick, in his mind, he describes her as he can, he can envision her at a high school football game, shrieking with joy when the team scores a touchdown. She's kind of like an enthusiastic, effusive type of person, whereas Nick is more of a cautious, staccato, noirish kind of guy. Gotcha. They start working together. Um, and so I don't want to say, you know, obviously, I don't want to um, commit too many spoilers here, but the basic setup in 27 Days is that Nick is hated by a woman named Margarita Ferguson. Margarita Ferguson is one of a group of 16 to 20 wealthy, aristocratic, alt-right individuals who are extremely powerful, who tend to work off the radar or behind the scenes. They're not the sort of people you would see, you know, making speeches in public for the most part or that sort of thing. Their goal, that it really... They're going, you know, they have two or th three things they want to achieve. They want to eliminate the immigration of minority groups such as Latinos and Muslims as much as possible. Those Muslims and Latinos that we already have here in the country, they want to lock them up in private prisons as much as possible. They're instrumental in building the private prison industry in the United States. And uh, because in Rogues and Patriots, Nick is actually, I think in Rogues and Patriots, which will, you know, be published as the 
sequel to 27 Days, but it actually comes before it. It's actually the prequel. In it, Nick is captured and escapes, I believe, five times. Ah. So by the time 27 Days, and some of these escapes are, you know, it, they, they didn't come easy. So by that point, Nick is hated by the principals. At the same time, there's a contingent or a faction of the principals that kind of wants to put Nick to work for them. The reason they want him to work for them is because they recognize that he's quite competent and can, you know, he has good organizational abilities, he can take on a job, and he can execute it. So for that, per for that reason, they, um, they like him. They want him to work for them. At the same time, they hate him. Why do they hate him? Well, it turns out that back in 2011, Nick was hired by a wealthy Pasadena billionaires to look for her best friend's son who had disappeared. And in it, he discovers that there's a gentleman named Frank Constantine. And Frank Constantine is a serial killer of women. Oh, there we go. I like that part. And so, and so Nick and his team, yeah, it's kind of like a, almost like a true crime thing. Oh, yeah. Nick and his team, um, they set out to find Frank Constantine and bring him to justice. With, you know, great difficulty, they managed to do it. And in the end, Frank Constantine has every opportunity to surrender. But he refuses to surrender. He has a pipe bomb in his hand, and he's about to blow everyone to kingdom come. When his assistant, a fellow named Henry Moore, or Henry some, I can't remember his name, Henry shoots Frank Constantine with a Ruger, and Frank Constantine's head explodes. So that's the end of Frank Constantine. So that's in 2011. Nick and uh, his partners discover that Frank Constantine was more than a serial killer of women. He was also a ranking member of the principals, and he was a military psychiatrist engaged in what he called, euphemistically, gentler, kinder torture techniques. And so Nick's partner, Bobby Moore, is really interested in this. And while they were tracking down Frank Constantine, they found one of his safe houses, and they find his gentler, kinder torture records. So they pilfer the records. They take them back to Bobby Moore's safe house, which is in the city terrace section of uh, East Los Angeles. And so this was the mistake. And because, in essence, they had stolen what is arguably government property, Frank Constantine's gentler, kinder torture, experiment records, because he was a military psychiatrist working for the military. Some brown vans show up with some gentlemen who insist on retrieving the torture records. Or Nick and Bobby give them back. You know, they have no standing to actually possess them, so they give them back. Frank Constantine's close friends among the principals do not give and they do not forget. And so Seven years later, Nick is abducted by a gentleman named Thomas Quincy, one of the principals, and by another one of the principals, Margarita Ferguson, who's kind of a rabble-rouser. And so that's when Nick originally finds himself in the crosshairs of the principals. And so in Rogues and Patriots, he's captured five times, he escapes five times. And we won't go into what happens because it will hopefully be published in 2024. And so as 27 Days begins, one of the principals who abducted Nick in the first place, Thomas Quincy, is sort of out of the picture, or at least is out of the picture to some degree. He had actually taken a criminal fall as what he was doing, his goal was to organize people to perform false flag violent operations against the United States. 
In other words, domestic terrorism. And actually, when they first abducted Nick, they wanted Nick to work for him because they wanted Nick to, you know, organize the false flag operations. Obviously, Nick would never even consider doing anything of that sort. Um, but that's what they wanted him for. So then fast forward to 27 days. Um, Rogues and Patriots ends in October of 2018. 27 days picks up the thread in April of 2019. And in it, Nick discovers or is informed that the principals have kidnapped Bobby Moore, Nick's best friend, partner in his PI firm, Nick Firm, and Nick Cranham Associates, and his you know, friend for 30 years. They originally met when they were studying criminology at San Francisco State University several decades previously. So Bobby Moore has been kidnapped, and Nick has to get him back. So they have serious leverage now over Nick. They Exactly, Michael. They have serious leverage. And not only that, but there's another one of the principals, a snowy-haired gentleman, kind of an avuncular snowy-haired gentleman named Desmond Cole. Desmond Cole is very hard to read, kind of like he talks out of both sides of his mouth, smiling all along. So Desmond Cole informs Nick that, oh, no, actually, it doesn't quite happen that way. I don't want to go in plot-wise to how it happens. <laughs> but anyway, Nick finds out that Bobby has been taken. And shortly thereafter, he's contacted by Desmond Cole, who tells him, who gives him the ultimatum. And the ultimatum is, and this is where the title 27 Days comes from. Nick has 27 days to turn himself in to Margarita Ferguson, who, for some reason, Margarita just hates, hates and despises Nick, loathes him. Her goal is to get him in her clutches so that she can torture him and then ultimately execute him in the most painful way possible. So Nick has given the ultimatum. He has 27 days to turn himself in. If he turns him in, Bobby Moore, at least in theory, will be put in an airplane and flown to Argentina where he'll be dropped off, no questions asked, with money and new identification. So, so the race against time begins. And so Nick has 27 days. It's the devil's own choice. If he can't find and liberate Bobby Moore during that time period, he's going to have to, uh, if he doesn't turn himself in, Bobby Moore will be sent to Scorpion Prison in Cairo, where he will be tortured and executed in the most painful way possible. So Nick basically has to either liberate Bobby Moore or he has to turn himself in to save Bobby Moore. We can all imagine what we'd feel like if we were in that position. Well, what do you do? I mean, this person is the closest friend of your entire lifetime. You can't just leave him out there to hang and dry. But so you got to do something. How do you do it? So what I attempted to do in 27 days, I attempted to put the protagonist, Nick Crane, in the most difficult position possible, an almost impossible position. It's a big country. The principals have immense power, and... Uh, They've stashed Bobby Moore somewhere. Nick has to find out where they've stashed him. So thus begins his challenge to find and liberate Bobby Moore. Along the way, he's introduced by, and here we'll backtrack a bit, in Rogues and Patriots, Nick was originally hired by a beautiful Iraqi woman named Adara Ghaffari. Adara and her father, Muhammad Ghaffari, are, in essence, prisoners of the principles. Muhammad Ghaffari had cut a deal to escape from Iraq back in the late 90s, and he had come to the United States with his daughter, Adara. Um, Adara's mother had been, had been murdered in Iraq. And so they come to the United States, and then they discover that, you know, they're really not free at all. They are given a, in order to, you know, legally 
you know, if you were in Iraq in those days, you can't just transfer your money to banks in the United States. It's not very easy and is perhaps not possible at all. So in essence, uh, one of the principles, Thomas Quincy had control of Muhammad's bank accounts. And he'd been a wealthy oil broker in Iraq. So there was lots of money, but, you know, they were only given enough to live comfortably. And, uh, and so early in Rogues and Patriots, Adara approaches Nick and hires him to go back east to find and talk to her father, who is being held house prisoner, being held under house arrest by Thomas Quincy. It works out in such a way that at a certain point, Nick and Adara become lovers. Nick is long since divorced by his ex-wife, who simply can't handle the degree of violence that seems to follow Nick like the bubonic plague. So to fast forward to 27 days, about 100 pages into the story, Adara appears. She's at, at this point, she was an actor in college, and she's working in repertory theater. And she's in Wisconsin at that point, where Nick just happens to be. The reason Nick happens to be there is he discovers that Margarita Ferguson is holding MASA, MASA rallies in the Midwest, drumming up support for the president <laughs> in these in these stories, the president is never, you know, named, but of course, the reader can easily figure out what president we're talking about. <laughs> After attending a massa rally or two, Nick, Nick has, he has a database expert, a very smart young man named Greg Thurston, who, one of those guys who thinks being a PI is the most glamorous job in the world. And, Greg had come to work for Nick a few years earlier, and uh, he's a nice young man, a bright young man, nice young man and smart. And uh, Nick's goal with Greg was to make sure that Greg just doesn't get involved in the heavy stuff, doesn't get involved in the violent stuff. And so in order to achieve that, Nick had, Nick had Greg Yes, serving subpoenas and that sort of thing. Unfortunately, he serves a subpoena to the wrong character whose thugs jump on him, jump him, throw him across the room, and he lands on his back and neck. And henceforth, he's a paraplegic. So Greg Thurston, Nick's database expert, ex, you know, extraordinaire, is a paraplegic who works for Nick. And uh, basically, Greg Thurston is an expert at finding stuff on the internet, including the dark web, where, you know, most of us probably never venture. Um, but Greg's an expert there. And so through the course of Rogues and Patriots and 27 Days, Greg Thurston gets Nick lots of very valuable information. In this case, however, the information um, Greg gets Nick is that Nick is, um, is, is that Adara is there locally um, in one of the nearby towns in Wisconsin, 40 or 50 miles away, and she wants to see Nick. So Nick naturally goes to see her, but the, the surprise that happens is that the next day, Adara introduces Nick to Carrie Little, the young idealistic Progressive FBI agent. I'm sorry, Carrie North, not Carrie. Right. Carrie North. Okay. Um, the young idealistic FBI agent, and so that's in. As I say, they're like oil and water at first, but they need each other. Nick, gotcha. Carrie, because as an FBI agent, you know, with the team working for her, she has firepower. Right. And uh, and on the other hand, Carrie needs Nick. So because Nick has um the ability to go underground in a way that even, even you know, skilled underground FBI special agents can't always do. And, and, so, they, and so they team up. And, and so this helps Nick considerably um, in his efforts to uh, try to find and rescue Bobby Moore. So that, uh, quite, that paraplegic sounds like Ironside, the old 
uh, Ironside show where he's a paraplegic. And <laughs> so, so that's almost, uh, so then she's going to even use him too, the paraplegic. She's going to use him. Who do you mean by the she? Uh, the FBI agent. Uh, well, the, or is it just going to be Nick using him? And that's a really good question. Actually, she doesn't use him. Huh. She, has, she has her own database expert. Oh, okay. Kind of a, kind of a technical expert named Tim Swan. Tim's like a little guy, kind of looks like he was with his hair flopping across his forehead. He's the kind of guy who looks like he was born to drive a getaway car. <laughs> but in, in but you know, actually he's a you know he's dedicated to a to Carrie North actually has a crush on her, though it's not really reciprocated. And uh, and so for for database type questions, Carrie turns to um, Tim Swan, her expert, whereas Nick turns to Greg Thurston, his expert. Now, in order in order for Nick to agree to work for Carrie, he insists that he gets immunity because you know Nick has never been a guy who's too concerned or. Nick has often been, shall we say, a bit unconcerned with skirting the law. And uh, he has kind of a checkered past. And uh, so Kerry arranges to get him um, FBI immunity. And so, so he's basically licensed to engage in any kind of investigation necessary as long as it's focused in the general area of Margarita Ferguson and the principals. So they don't. So the principals is concerned, though the principals uh, better uh, should not find out that he's doing this because wouldn't that like undermine everything he's doing? The principals should not find out that he's doing what that he's that he's hooked up with the FBI agent Terry North and trying to find out where his uh, friend is. Oh, a- absolutely right. Okay, right. Their help is not always that. Um, you know, they're, they're just not that skillful. They're not that good. A lot of them are, you know, ex-cons and that sort of thing. Okay. And and so anyway, so um, so Nick, and so Nick, who's good at talking to all sorts of people, Nick, you know, works to get the information he needs to find out where where um Bobby Moore is being held. And uh, and Nick's sense is that now Margarita Ferguson, she has a big organization. She has sleeper cells all over the western states. And she has some sleeper cells in the east. Even though her present MASA campaign, which is MASA, Make America Safe Again, <laughs> largely is largely centered in, in the Midwest. Gotcha. And, and so, and I don't want to say... Too much more about, you know, I'm afraid I've already committed a few spoilers, but um, <laughs> Margarita Ferguson has a very interesting fellow working for her, a slippery, handsome, amoral son of a gun who goes by the name of Tommy Blank. I like how you said amoral, not immoral. That's actually very nice. I like that. Yeah, he's, he's amoral. Tommy Blank is a real friendly fellow, and he's utterly unscrupulous. He has no loyalty to anyone, really, other than that, um, other than that, he, uh, you know, he kind of goes whichever way the wind blows, to some degree. And, and so, he becomes a very important character in this story. And he may have the keys to where Bobby North is being held. Or he may know people who know where Bobby North is being held. So much of this story consists of Nick on the search for Bobby Moore. And then if he finds out where Bobby Moore is, well, then he's going to have to figure out how to get to Bobby Moore and liberate him. And so that's the setup. Gotcha. So it's, it's, I like it. A lot of, a lot of twists and turns here. And then, uh, I have a question, um, with, uh, your protagonist. Uh, do you see yourself any part of your nature or your uh, in, Nick? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, the reality is, you know, I'm basically a nonviolent guy. And, uh, you know, I don't have a big gun collection. Um, but 
you know, I have been around, kicked around quite a bit on the streets as a young man. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty comfortable in rough and tumble situations to a degree, uh-huh. but not like Nick Crane. Nick Crane grew up in northern Minnesota in the, you know, on, you know, on the edge of the Masabi Range, the Iron Range. His father was the town postman and an alcoholic. And Nick spent his childhood protecting himself and his younger brother from his father's drunken rages. And so, and so Nick was introduced to violence, you know, at a young age. And, uh, you know, Nick's a survivor. And so Nick learned to, um, you know, he, you know, he learned street fighting. He learned boxing. He learned, a, you know, and obviously he learned to shoot a gun. And, and so, you know, what, how I see myself in connection to Nick, Nick, you know, is what I might be or could be if my upbringing had been as hardcore as Nick's upbringing. However, my upbringing, you know, my father loved me, my mother loved me, you know, my upbringing um, was not that bad. It was pretty good in a lot of ways. And, and so, so I said, so the life lessons I learned as a young man were very different from the life lessons Nick learned. But that being said, with Nick's courage and uh, resolute nature, I don't know if this is the best way to put it, but, you know, when the former president, who was um, unelected in 2020, right. when he was elected, and, uh, you know, at that point there was quite a bit of furor because the group um, Antifa was supposedly, you know, engaging in pitched battles or at least was willing to engage in pitched battles with, with um, the alt-right forces. Right. And I thought to myself, I thought, man... You know, I wish that I had that kind of courage and that kind of willingness, you know, to lay it all on the line, to fight for what I think is right, rather than, you know, just voting like we all do and trying to be good citizens and, you know, all of that. And, and, and so, you know, so, so Nick Crane is kind of what I would like to be in an alternate universe, if such a universe existed. Kind of like a noir universe? Yeah, you know, like, that's a really good way to put it. If we lived in a completely noir universe, and we good-hearted progressives didn't have the option to just peacefully be good-hearted progressives, what would we do? We would have to fight for our lives, the same as Nick is fighting for his life, and he's fighting for um, his friend Bobby Moore's life. Right. So, so I definitely identify with Nick Crane, um, you know, to quite a degree, even though he's very unlike what I'm actually like. One thing I have in common with him, and I appreciate the question you guys asked, one thing I have in common with him, and this is where I differ from a lot of my friends, associates, good-hearted liberals and progressives all, I think a weakness of the liberal progressive part of America, is that it has a very tough time coming to grips with the reality of evil. Oh, okay, yeah. We could go all the way back to, do you guys know who Hannah Arendt was? She was a notable philosopher um, who escaped Nazi Germany. She was Jewish, and she wrote a very influential book in which she's, in which she convinced herself and, you know, and stated in her book that evil is banal. Evil is, you know, it's kind of like soft peddling evil in a way. Evil is not banal. Evil is evil. You know, good, obviously, you know, it's a very broad spectrum. What is good? What is acceptable? But, um, but evil at a certain point is just, is just plain evil. And it needs to be stopped. And the question is, how do we stop it? And, uh, it's interesting. Everyone, such as, you know, you guys or anyone that's interested in true crime, that's interested in horror, whether you consciously think about it or not, you're at some level you are aware that 
evil exists and it is real. The serial killer is a great example of that. That's like the serial killer is evil on steroids. Yeah, complete lack of remorse. A complete lack of and even an inability to feel remorse. That's why I like when you said amoral as opposed to immoral, because that really gets right to that. I love that. Yeah, and, and Tommy Blank is probably the key character in 27 Days who is amoral. Even Margarita and the Principles. Um, are they amoral? Well, arguably less. Ar arguably yes, but you know, perhaps more it's accurate to say that they are, you know, extremely immoral or extremely self-serving. And vindictive. <laughs> and, and vindictive, right. Well, in the case of Nick Crane, they're extremely vindictive. Now, I think Margarita Ferguson hates Nick Crane because she foiled their initial campaign to either destroy him or to force him to work for them. On, on, on that note, we kind of have to wrap it up. Now, how, do, how do you want readers and people to find you? Do you uh, have social media, a website? Uh, what, what's your presence out there? I have a Facebook page called All Things Crime Blog, which has, uh, it has about 6,000 followers or so. Though it's not as active um, as it was when I was running the crime blog kind of on a full-time basis. I have my Facebook page, um, this Patrick H. Moore, I have my Twitter um, account, which is at Patrick H. Moore 1. And uh, so to, to contact me directly, those would be the ways to do it. Um, but, of course, I, on, on my um, crime blog, I have my, my publicist, um, Corin Pritchett. I have information how to, con how to contact her. And as far as actually purchasing the book, which is being published on February 6th, it will be on Amazon in both um, paperback and e-version. My publisher is Down and Out Books. And that also it can be ordered directly from Down and Out Books. So now do you have a website? I have a website, All Things Crime Blog, which and I'm kind of tortured by this because it really... You know, it's really not a writer's website, but I kind of, you know, I'm considering turning it into purely a writer's website. I'm not sure how I'm going to handle that. Okay. Well, uh, the book we've been talking about, 27 Days, is a Nick Crane thriller, book one, and our guest, Patrick H. Moore, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me, guys. It was great asking you questions. It really sounds interesting. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.